Hi everyone, this is Ben Guest. Today's conversation is with author John Griswold. John Griswold is a writer and MFA instructor in the craft of writing. I first came across his work with a fantastic piece he wrote that appeared in the Best American Sports Writing 2020 about the Angolan prison rodeo in Louisiana. I can't recommend that piece strongly enough. Much of John's work appears on The Common Reader, which is a journal of the essay that's attached to Washington University, St. Louis. So the website is commonreader.wustl.edu. Again, I can't recommend John's work highly enough. I first met John as part of a sports writing group that I'm a part of, and we read John's piece about the Angolan prison rodeo, Angola prison rodeo, and he was kind enough to come on and talk about his process for that. So I followed up with John, and he was happy, kind enough to come on my podcast and talk all things writing. Enjoy. So John, let's dive in and talk writing. Could you first talk about your routines for writing? What time do you like to write? Where? For how long? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Ben. Um, so I am a full-time writer now for WashU and uh, was working remotely even before COVID hit. And uh, of course that messed with everybody's schedule. My younger son is here with me um, and he does his high school remotely as well. So we're both remote, uh, both in this apartment and have become kind of half a night creature as a result. So um, the writing pretty much re revolves around that schedule. Um, you know, we get up maybe 10 a.m. or at least I do. Um, I get enough coffee on board to feel kind of inspired um, and then start to write. And, you know, there's days when I put in uh, a few hours broken up by errands and cooking dinner and that kind of thing. And there's other days when, um, you know, a good 12 hours might be necessary. And I've always kind of worked that way. When I was in graduate school, I used to do, you know, 16 hours straight. Um, and so it, it's not really regular, I guess, is my answer. So you can go some days getting 12 hours of writing in? That, that's phenomenal. I can. Um, and, you know, life has to go on. And so I, I stop to cook dinner or do whatever I need to do and then often go back to it. I find that the break in between the two is actually useful to kind of let things simmer in my mind without actually con consciously thinking about them. Um, and so sometimes when I come back to it, it's already 11 p.m. or midnight. That, it seems to me in, in most, if not all, creative endeavors, that simmering period is key, where our unconscious kind of works on the problem we're, we're working on at the time. Uh, do you find that's true for you as well? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I do a bunch of different kinds of writing and some of more on the journalistic end. And I, I have found that, you know, that's more mechanical in some way. And maybe that simmering period isn't as necessary. But a lot of times I'll just start something like a 500 word blog post and I think it's going to be quick and out and it's, 
it's not because what I've unconsciously chosen to do is more lyrical or something almost more like prose poetry. And then I'm kind of in trouble because I, I keep trying to force it to get done with it and let's, you know, just have done with that. Uh, but it, it requires backing away from it, you know, and sometimes that kind of process can go on for a week just for the, the brief blog post. Yeah, so sometimes I struggle with knowing how far along I am, meaning am I 90% done or am I 60% done? And a lot of times I think we think we're 90% done and it turns out we're only 60%. Yeah, absolutely. Do you also get the feeling that, you know, you're getting close, but there's the possibility you might drop dead at the keyboard and then people will look at what you were doing and say, oh, the poor guy, he, you know, he wanted to be a writer, but look at this. It's just not good enough. It, it, it killed that's him. just me. <laughs> His badness killed him is what I'm thinking. So you mentioned the lyricism and I think that part of writing is so much more unconscious than conscious. How do you think about, especially in the more lyrical writing, how do you think about sentence construction and, and finding the exact right word, correct word? Um, you know, it's a great question because it's, it's probably mostly done unconsciously. Um, obviously we read people that we admire and some of those rhythms, you know, find their way into things. When I wrote the Angola prison rodeo essay, um, you know, for no apparent reason to me, some of the echoes of something that Chekhov wrote about going to a prison colony, um, started to just kind of surface a little bit. And so, um, you know, I found myself consciously using words, even from Russian, the word versed, which was a unit of measure of distance, uh, sort of came to mind. And I, I just liked the idea of it. So I ran with it. But a lot of those things, I think, just have to do with the music of the prose. And as you follow that, and you follow, you know, what the essay seems to want to be, then that leads you to put the words down on the page. It's it's all a bit mysterious for me. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that makes it so fascinating uh, and so interesting to talk about with other writers, and also so difficult to explain and so hard to teach. I imagine. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a lot of things that can be taught, and and certainly when I was MFA faculty. Um, you know, I, I know a somewhat famous writer who used to say that MFA graduate workshops were actually editing workshops, which on the face of it, I, I wasn't sure I liked to hear that. But I think there is something to that. You know, I would describe that part of it to my students as, um, you know, we all, as we write, we create these gardens of earthly delight and and yet they're sealed off by walls you know in the act of creation of that piece I think we also raise walls to protect us from what you know readers might see when they look at it 
And so I think a good editor or a good faculty member will often look over that wall and describe to the writer what it is that they see in a fairly objective fashion. Um, and so, you know, that kind of stuff can be addressed. I think just, you know, basic stuff like have you answered all the questions that a reader might have along the way? Um, or are there redundancies? Is it condensed and concise and all those things that good writing should be? Um, you know, whatever is on the essay's mind, which is another of those kind of mysterious concepts as if it has its own consciousness or being, you know, apart from the writer, which I think it does. You know, has that thing been addressed or it, does it remain sublimated in some way in the prose? And, you know, if that's the case, then the reader may read it and say, well, you know, it's all very nice, it's tightly written and so on, but it feels as if it's not quite getting to what it wants to get to or something, you know. So there's, you know, as you well know, there's about a million things that need to be done all at once to have it go well. Um, and I think we just take them up alternately one at a time as we can. Yeah, I think there's so much wisdom in the idea that the piece is going to be what it wants to be. And to some extent, we have to just create the conditions for that to happen. You mentioned your piece about Angola, which was featured in Best American Sports Writing. And I've been working, I've been working on a memoir about coaching and the series editor for um, those books, Glenn Stout, uh, had a couple of great conversations with him and he offered me some feedback but essentially it was the same as what you're saying which is that let the piece be what it wants to be almost let the piece lead you rather than having a um, pre-assigned destination yeah i think you know there's again lots of different kinds of writing that we can do you know mechanical is not really the right word but you know, if you just need to convey certain facts, that's one thing, you know, but if it is going to be more on the creative end of things, um, then it, you know, it's just a, a process of discovery, I think, for us as writers um, and listening to what that piece wants to do is both difficult and, and once you figure it out, then it can be tremendously rewarding. How often do you get into a flow state when you're writing? I, I think a lot, generally. Um, you know, the, the long writing periods is usually an indication. If I've gone four or five hours and I look up and it's time to do something else and I'm surprised at that, then it's usually a pretty good sign. Yes, that, that's one of the best feelings. You mentioned the MFA classes that you've, you've taught. What did you do the first day of class? Um, it'd be a couple of things. I, sometimes I would do a close reading because, um, you know, in MFA programs, you can't always assume that somebody was an English major. For instance, they may be coming from other disciplines and may not have you know, done close readings, for example. And so I had a, um, a short fiction that was written in the 50s called The Day We Left Tecumcari. 
and it was by a writer named George Herman in the Western Review. And it was about two cowboy guys who've, you know, they've been on the rodeo circuit and they, you know, run across a car accident. Um, and the piece is very short. It's probably 400 words or something. Um, but in that space, which is told in this flat, very, um, you know, it, it's so calm considering the circumstances of the accident that they come to bear witness to, uh, that it's almost comic, it's ironic, you know, lots of levels of irony in that. And in the close reading, what you begin to see is that they act almost as secular priests for this guy who's going to get a kind of last rites from them. Um, and I, I think that close reading line by line to understand um, who was it, Pound or Williams or somebody said, uh, poetry is a little machine made out of words. And to understand what the mechanism of those words is, how the, the words do work word by word, line by line, I think is a, a great lesson to learn. It doesn't have to be a large machine made out of words to do a whole lot of work. I mean, I, I would sometimes describe short stories even as, you know, some of them are small and perfect and fragrant like an orange and others are a city bus that'll just run you down, you know. Yeah, is, is that William Carlos Williams that you're referencing there? Yeah, I don't remember if it was him or Ezra Pound, a little machine made out of words. And one of my favorite poems is, is the Red Wheelbarrow poem. I forget the actual title, but that's a three-line poem that, like you said, it, it, the machine works perfectly. The words work perfectly. Yeah, presenting that image. And I, I guess, you know, one of the many things I'm trying to do when I'm writing is to come up with those images, which, you know, as, as you're aware, there's, there was an imagist movement at the start of the 20th century. Um, and I, I think it was T.S. Eliot who said that an image is an intellectual emotional constant in a moment of time. And so it's presenting this little thing. It's not drama really. It's not even narrative necessarily. It's just, this little vision, which doesn't even have to be visual by itself. And in that, you get this almost epiphany flash of the way the world is, you know. And um, I think if you can find some of those and use them as anchors in your work, then the whole thing gains power. Oh, that's beautifully put. It's, it's finding, it's looking at the small thing to see the big thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, we all make assertions all day, every every day, and a lot of our conversations are based on those. What a great day it is, we say, or you are beautiful, or that is wonderful. You know, all those linking verbs, is, am, are, was, were, have been, had been, will be, become, assert how the world is, you know, but there's no evidence for it. And I think those little images present in very, condensed form that data necessary to prove the assertion right and there's something beautiful that happens in that i think it was stephen king in, in his book on writing he described writing as telepathy right i have something in my head and i'm putting it in your head and so when you're describing a scene visually 
it's something you've either seen directly or it's something you're imagining in your mind, but then ultimately through the process of writing and, and reading, it's transmitted to someone else. Yeah, the Karate Kid version, right? And see the tree, make the tree, that sort of thing. I guess, yeah, yeah. Or just, you, you know, it's it's something that ex first exists in your imagination and then in words on paper that only you see and then words that someone else sees and then it exists in their imagination. So it's a yeah, very it's, Tolstoy interesting thing. called it an infection, right? Mm. It's an art as an infection. Mm -hmm. I think there's something to that. And, you know, and, and just to add on to that, you know, creating part, going back to the mystery, Norman Mailer called, I think he was referring to fiction as the spooky art. Mm. You know, you start creating something and it's, it is, but it isn't coming out of your imagination. You know? Right. I mean, we've, we've touched on this in this conversation, but there, there is a technical side to writing, you know, grammar, punctuation, et cetera. And then there's this spooky part of tapping into your unconscious and, and letting things simmer and so forth. Um, you talked about those, those well-described visual pieces as anchors. Um, how often do you like to have those anchors in a piece generally? Or how many, I guess? Um, I, I can't say I have any sort of formula for that. I mostly just feel grateful when one pops up in some way. You know, in the podcast you and I were in before, um, someone asked the question, why did I compare the bull at the Angola prison rodeo to a Hyundai? And, you know, I feel a little bad because I, I wasn't really thinking of an answer. And I said, because my wife has a Hyundai and so on. But the answer is actually more complicated than that. I realized that at the beginning of that piece, I start with almost a kind of guilt trip on myself where I'm driving in my car and it's a beautiful day. And I'm understanding that there are men locked in a maximum security prison not, not far away. And I'm going to be using my freedom to go watch them get bowled over by bulls. Um, and so cars are a motif already in that piece, you know, and I think the images many times come from chords or echoes of a given motif so that by the time, you know, I'm thinking of a bull, which was just this monstrously large creature, pure muscle, you know, a car did come to mind. And then the question is, well, is it an F-150? No, it's not that. Absolutely not. You know, but it's, it's like that Hyundai somehow, you know? Yeah. I, I don't know what it is. I, I'd have to think even harder why Hyundai came to mind. Yeah. I mean, it's part of that spooky art, right? Yeah. The spooky side of it. Are there, with writers you're working with, are there any recurring books that you recommend to them? Um. Yeah, I mean, on the nonfiction side, of course, you know, we all have our own preferences. I've just reread much of Joan Didion. I'm just in love with Joan Didion. Um, and actually, speaking of assertions, the astonishing thing about Didion is, first off, she was so young. You know, I think um, slouching towards Bethlehem was maybe she was 28 years old or something like that. But she makes these assertions in her books 
and they stick, you know, over decades they stick. And it's, it's really just an incredible talent. Um, and I'd like to be able to do more of those things. But there's other nonfiction writers that, you know, Hemingway came up towards the end of that podcast you and I were involved in before. Uh, and his uh, Death in the Afternoon is such a, a weird and kind of wonderful book, you know, just because it's so outside the normal forms and it's a little bit meta even for its time. And, you know, there's just an awful lot there. I love writers like MFK Fisher, Mary Frances Kennedy Fisher, who somebody said, you know, if we had a properly run culture, she'd be considered one of the great writers of the 20th century. Um, and often, you know, lumped in under food and travel writing. Um, but she was no genre writer. She's the real deal, you know, literary nonfiction writer, as good as Hemingway. And I love her books. But um, yeah, I, I mean, for later, I could always come up with a list if if people are interested, but um, many. Mm. Is there any particular book on writing that you find yourself recommending? Um, I, I think books on writing, books in general, are useful for people at different stages in their life, and then maybe you outgrow them and find more challenging things. I, I remember many years ago, I was a big fan of John Gardner's book, The Art of Fiction, I think it's called, and he has another one, uh, Notes for a Young Novelist or something like that. And it's, it's pretty commonsensical stuff. He was writing firmly within a kind of realist tradition. And so, you know, you have to take it with a grain of salt that he has his own kind of agenda on some of that. And I, I love Strunk and White, you know, as, as a kind of arbiter of good taste in writing. Um, you know, I, I actually read a lot of um, poets, prose, and University of Michigan has a great book series, uh, I assume is still going. I think there were dozens of titles, but it was Poets on Poetry, I think it was called. Mm. And, um, you know, poets are the real wordsmiths. And they get in there and, and tinker around. It's, it's like the building blocks of life that they tinker with, you know. And to hear them articulate what they're doing, you know, in prose, is very instructive for me. Um, I don't read too many books on writing anymore. Mm. Um, I, I'm interested in craft essays and so on if, if they're well written. Mm -hmm. Do you, thinking about poets and, and just honing every word, do you do anything like read your piece aloud or record yourself reading it and listen back to it or anything like that? I don't. Um, it, you know, Flaubert was famously said to shout his prose aloud so that he could actually hear it and that he'd scared, you know, all the hired help in his chateau, <laughs> which is a, a wonderful image in itself. Um, I think oral language and written language is, they're almost two separate languages for me. Mm. And um, 
maybe I'm doing a lot of that work silently in my head. I don't really know, but to answer your question, finally, no, I, I don't tend to read it out loud. Mm. Um, just, I think, two more questions. Uh, one, when you're working with an editor, working with a good editor, what type of feedback do you like to get? I've never really had what's thought of traditionally as an editor, um, just because of the venues I've written for. Um, I mean, it's it's not a brag or anything that I I do all my own editing as I go. It's it's just simply been an issue of platforms and what kind of resources have been available to them. I, I'm also a book series editor at University of Georgia Press. Um, and I, I find that in academic publishing, you know, a lot of the money has kind of faded away for those publishers. And so if they ever had sort of different layers of line editors and development editors and final editors like all that's pretty much gone away um and so i i just tend to do it myself i do have some uh trusted readers you know i sort of refer to them as my board of trustees um and uh one one editor katya cummins in particular has been very useful and i i use her services as a kind of development editor type thing and i welcome those things because sometimes they can uh, you know really avert a, a disaster there's a poet named sean singer who's out of uh, new york and i've actually hired him uh, once or twice to have a look at something that I was really just kind of uncertain about. And I would ask him to read it with a certain thing in mind. And at least once he came back and said, you know, that part seems fine, but I'm not sure I agree with these other points you're making. And it, it really made me recast the piece. So it, it was vitally important. What is the book series that you edit for University of Georgia? I was the founding series editor for a, a line called Crux Books. It's a, a line of literary nonfiction, uh, and I've now stepped away from that position. I, I kind of misspoke before. I'm not currently the editor, mm. um, but it's a great series, does great work, um, and brings all kinds of writers, both known and relatively unknown, into print. Nice. And last question, you mentioned venues that you've written for. Currently, your, some of your work is available, most of your work, I imagine, is available at the Common Reader, which is part of the Washington University at St. Louis um, website. So their website is commonreader.wustl.edu. And could you just tell us a little bit about the Common Reader? Sure. The subtitle is the Journal of the Essay. Uh, it's been around for half a dozen years, and um, there are print issues and also online. Um, you know, much of the work, probably two thirds of the work, are shorter pieces that we call dispatches, which appear um, multiple times a week. And it, really, the wonderful thing about writing for the Common Reader, which is edited by Gerald Early at WashU. Um, 
is that we get to come up with our own ideas. And so, you know, we do film reviews and book reviews and profile pieces of people and, um, you know, interviews with folks and little imagistic, um, you know, visits to the Corps of Engineers lakes. And, you know, it's, it's really wonderful to have that freedom. And then we also write longer essays that we call 3Ks because the target word count is 3,000 words. Um, and, you know, that's that Angola prison rodeo piece that I wrote was one of those 3Ks. Great. John, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I know you're busy. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your time with us and particularly just go, going deep on the process of writing, both the, the technical side and the spooky side. Great. Thanks for having me, Ben. It's been an honor. That was my conversation with John Griswold. This is Ben Guest, and you can find all of my work at benbow.substack.com. That's benbow.substack.com. Have a great day.